You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Hello and welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg. We've got a killer lineup today for you uh, on the show. Uh, later in the hour, we're going to be talking to Sophie Black, who's the head of publications at the Wheeler Centre um, and someone Triple R listeners will obviously be extremely familiar with. Um, she's going to join me to talk about the next chapter, which is an extraordinary kind of funding initiative that I just actually can't believe hasn't happened before. It's really going to offer about 15 writers this incredible opportunity to not only just have a block of money to work on their book, but actually like really genuine kind of career pathways and opportunities and mentorship and it is just incredible. So Sophie's going to be here to talk about that later in the hour. But up next, we'll be talking to uh, S.A. Jones or Serge as uh, her friends and uh, fans know her, who is the author of The Fortress, which is already earning her comparisons with Ursula Le Guin and Margaret Atwood with its world-building inventiveness and its goriating commentary on the patriarchy through the entirely matriarchal world of the vague. Uh, it's a conversation you definitely will not want to miss. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Now it's been called an immersive and thought-provoking as the fiction of Ursula Le Guin. Uh, that was the gush of one particular reviewer. An intellectually ambitious feminist thought experiment, timely in its own right. That's all about the fortress and its complex Amazonian denizens, the Vake. They're a, a genuinely matriarchal society and one that's been called upon to meet our justice to cisgender men from a world pretty close to our own, I have to say, um, who just don't really seem to get what it's like to be truly insignificant. Uh, this book uh, and uh, the people who read it are being well-schooled uh, by the wonderful S.A. Jones, a Melbourne-based novelist, essayist and reviewer with a PhD in history as well as this is now I think your third novel, um, Serge, as we like to call you, those of us who know and love you well. Thank you so much for coming in today to talk to us about uh, this wonderful book, The Fortress. It's such a pleasure. Just hand me the soapbox and wind me up. <laughs> well, the soapbox is thoroughly yours. And to just kind of preface this in total disclosure, uh, we were in a writer's group together that I have to say wasn't, you know, neither of us uh, managed to attend it terribly well. But I do recall you coming in with a, a fully formed manuscript uh, and just saying, I don't know what people are going to make of this. It's kind of a manifesto. It's kind of something else. Um, that was this book that's become The Fortress. And I have I just cannot sing its praises highly enough. It manages to both be an incredibly readable page turner, as incredibly kind of sexy and at times disturbing erotic fiction, uh, and also a real commentary, a necessary one on the kind of internalised patriarchy we all experience, the sort of institutionalised nature of it, uh, that really being dragged into the light um, through the kind of locus of seeing it completely turned on its head in the vague society. Talk to me about this book, Serge. Where did this come from? Because I imagine a deep well um, it was, was was where you kind of fished for this, but I want to hear your version. I think your description of the deep well is really apt. I started writing this book when I was about 10, although I wasn't aware of that at the time. I think this novel is an accretion of 
35 years of observing gender dynamics, power dynamics, observing how the corporate world works, observing how one learns to get along within that, and then I guess ultimately coming to a place of thinking, what would it take to make somebody whom this system serves well to change? What would be the catalyst to prompt, as you put it, this exoriating internal investigation? And when I started asking myself that question, I realised I needed to create a civilization like the VAKE because I couldn't answer that question in the world as we know it. I needed an inverse universe. Mm. I want you to talk a little bit about the actual narrative as it plays out. Because look, it's actually an incredibly well-structured book. Um, I have to say that that some ideas books don't hold together really well. This does kind of remind me of an, you know, a Margaret Atwoodian, if you like, universe in the sense that it really is just a great read and you have kind of created a culture and a, a you know, a whole cosmology almost for this this world. Um, you want to be in it. But t- but talk us through it. Talk us through the narrative that sort of, that, you know, all of these things hang off. So as the book opens, we meet our anti-hero, Jonathan, who is standing somewhat pensively at the entrance to the fortress. And for him, the fortress as a physical structure and as a civilization has always been at the outer edges of his consciousness. It's simply been there, he thinks, like his mother was there. So it's immediately framed as background noise for a man who is used to an omnipresent woman serving his needs. And the reason that Jonathan finds himself at the steps of the fortress is his wife has made it a condition of the continuation of their marriage that he enter the fortress for one year. Now, for all his faults, Jonathan does deeply love his wife and he is excited at the prospect of becoming a father. And somewhere in him, he recognises a blankness a spiritual nullness that he knows is problematic but he can't name. So he agrees to enter the fortress as a supplicant for one year and the price of that entrance is total and utter obedience and subjection to the vague. So the narrative is about his one year in the fortress structured around the changing seasons and the change that Jonathan undergoes. Mm, It's so interesting because, you know, I think when people might imagine this, they might think of it as almost a BDSM fantasy in some ways, because, you know, the vague have these kind of four pillars, which I'll get you to talk a little bit about later. But for them, sexuality and sex is just a a natural part of life, as natural as literally anything else. Mm -hmm. And it's very open. Their kind of um, sexual explorations and, and indeed, you know, sexual congress is just all out in the open quite literally in the fields, all happening for everyone to see with absolutely no shame attached to it. Um, But it is quite different to that because actually what's being promulgated and what you're showing is something that actually is probably much more familiar to, you know, women and female identifying people um, in terms of the disregard with which um, the male supplicants are treated in terms of, you know, what their role is, that they're basically... A non, you know, they're not important. They're just not important in terms of the society. And that is really what Jonathan has to try and learn. And it's such a fascinating exercise. Can you talk a little bit about that side of things? 
So the relationship of the vake to the supplicants who enter the fortress has been codified over many centuries. And in the opening chapter, the vake to whom Jonathan is assigned explains to him, look, you're not a prisoner. Our relationship is not one of overlord and serf. And the vake recognise they do in fact have obligations and responsibilities to these men. Um, they're very careful about their physical health. They're certainly not starved. And even the instances of brutality are regulated. So I, I'm not sure that I would describe these men as nothing. The, the vake do recognise an obligation to them. And of course, they recognise that they need these men in order for their civilization mm. to survive. Because they are a cloistered female and female identifying society, they need access to sperm, you know, mm. at, at its bluntest level. Mm. Uh, that's how they regenerate themselves. Yeah, it's not, I mean, I guess um, when I'm saying the, the lack of importance, I felt as though this was a really good analogy for patriarchy <laughs> in a lot of ways, because in that same way, um, you know, they're maternalistic or paternalistic in a way that you we'd expect in a patriarchal society. So it's like, you know, we will take care of you, you are necessary for procreation in much the same way that I guess women were treated for centuries and centuries and to a certain extent still are. So that level of kind of where you are in the structure of society, you're necessary for these elements, but nothing else. And I suppose the vague have dispensed with those other kind of social niceties of, you know, of including the sort of men in terms of actually even being there for, for love or for, mm -hmm. you know, anything else. Although there is that, and, and that's another element to this. This is not a two-dimensional story in any way. I don't want people to get that impression. There are complex characters, there are complex characters among the men. The vague are a little more unknowable because we're seeing them through... Uh, the eyes of Jonathan, who doesn't really get everything that's going on, but you get glimpses of the complexity here. And one of those complexities that I really want to touch on as well is that this is not just that kind of classical biological female dominant society. Uh, the vague are actually, you know, a much more complex group. And I'd love you to talk a little bit about the electi and their role in all of this. Yeah, I'm glad you've asked that question. So when I was conceptualising this society and thinking about what would the vague be? Although they are have, have a strong genetic inheritance um, and they look very, very similar, the, there is a key point um, in the novel where Mandalay explains the thing you need to understand about being vague is fundamentally it's a state of mind. And anybody who could inhabit that state of mind can become vague. So there are women and indeed men um, who enter the fortress and if they can demonstrate that they can inhabit this state of mind, regardless of biology or lived experience of gender, they can become fake. So it, it's, not a, it's not a particularly exclusive society, but it is one where the psychological armoury of being vague is very closely guarded. Mm, absolutely. And there's even, I think, a mention, um, you know, Jonathan kind of gets schooled on this, on what it is to, you know, that 
obviously having the goods down below is not what it is to be um, a man, nor is um, that the case for a woman either. So uh, the VAIC offer the electi who maybe have, you know, what's considered to be male genitalia, the opportunity to have an operation if they choose. Many choose not to and they are no less fake. And I think this is a really crucial point as well because I think it's one of those things that's just accepted in the VAIC society that is still something that our society um, is you know, gradually accepting, um, thankfully, but is is something that has been a part of this thousands, uh, you know, millennial old society that you've imagined, which I think is really interesting. Uh, look, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on 3 Triple R. It's a show about books, writing and the people who are behind the lines. And I'm talking today to S.A. Jones, uh, the author of The Fortress, um, and we're discussing this amazing book and, and its place here. I want to talk about, you know, I, this is one of those subjects that you don't often get to discuss, I guess, uh, with authors sometimes. And I'm just genuinely surprised Serge, that this book is not already just splashed all over billboards everywhere, that it's not massively huge. Um, it's one of those books, and I think this is going to be one that you will see more of. I can see this as a, a film or a television series, especially with the second um, season of The Handmaid's Tale, uh, the adaptation of Margaret Atwood's uh, book that was written terrifyingly in, in the 1980s, <laughs> but still bears uncanny relevance and, you know, terrifying relevance. This really does seem to be the repost to that, um, where, you know, it's sort of answering a lot of the Me Too sort of, you know, pain with like, this is, you know, what it feels like, feel it. Um, why do you think that it's been, you know, you were picked up by Bonnier, which are, you know, obviously Angela Meyer is commissioning editor for this, um, has great, um, you know, a great sense of what, you know, should be published and what should be out there. And I can't speak highly enough of her choices. Why do you think this book isn't, you know, wasn't kind of a, you know, engendering a feeding frenzy in the publishing community? Interesting question, and I completely agree with everything you've said about Angela. I mean, she is just mainlined into literature in the most extraordinary way. The responses that we had from what you would think of as, as the, the major well-established publishers just brought it home to me how conservative the literary world was. I actually had one response, and it ran along these lines. I can see that this is a work of genius, but I am not brave enough to publish it. Mm. It seems a, it seems really strange to me because actually this is an incredibly readable book and it's, you know, it's a quite, as I can see it, kind of commercially viable book as well. It does deal with these issues and you don't flinch from it and there's some very uncomfortable moments for the <laughs> protagonists, but they're moments that actually I would say the vast majority of, you know, female identifying people would relate mm. to. You know, they're things that we've all experienced. They're things that, you know, the kinds of things like the cat people, um, yes. you know, I guess short stories sort of covered really, that mm. sort of confusing notion of consent, the the freeze um, moment that, that's recently been discussed, um, you know, on Four Corners with, um, you know, a dreadful case um, that, you know, the question of what is consensual sex and what isn't. Um, you cover all of that in here in a way that really turns it on its head um, and has a kind of, you know, someone who is not necessarily the, the type of person that would normally experience that experiencing it and not to diminish, obviously, men who undergo kind of sexual assault or anything like that. But there's a really very specific um, element in here. Jonathan is in his own way undergoing a trial of his own making 
he's really his kind the vague have really designed a punishment mm-hmm. that fits his crimes even though they're not considered by society or the society he comes from to be crimes um, so he's designed his own experience in a way and it's an experience he subjected others to can you talk a little bit about that and you know the relevance of it look I think this is where you can see my background as a historian playing out in the novel because my expertise is in the history of ideas. And one of the repeated tropes in Western thought is this idea that redemption has to involve some element of physical scourging. There has to be um, physical pain, often to the point of death, if you think about the Jesus myth. So I was very much playing with that um, in terms of what Jonathan has to go through but his bodily experiences are ones you would usually associate with femaleness and femininity. Um, so I tried to create this this inverse experience around things like you know the shame of menstrual blood, where he has that encounter in the in, mm. in the opening the opening chapter, and those moments of have I consented? Have have I not consented? What is this? I don't I don't understand what is happening here, and I don't understand why my body and my mind are responding in this way. And then having to carry that uncertainty. You know, there is a key point in the, in the book where Jonathan has this realization that the guilt and the self questioning does the abuser's work for them. Which is so fascinating because there is, you know, obviously um, the flashbacks, not obviously, but there are flashbacks in this book that actually really do contextualise a lot of this. Um, I Look, I really do want people to go and read it. We have talked quite a bit about um, what is in here, but I think to experience it is, is really fascinating. One thing I have to say, though, I, I found um, there's a lot of really... Uh, engaged reviews of this book, um, quite perceptive reviews, quite a lot of them were reviewed by men. I'm wondering why that's the case, actually, why um, literary editors have gone down that route. Perhaps it's because they want people to, you know, engage with it from that perspective. But I found that really interesting. It is interesting, isn't it? And I've had some wonderfully perceptive reviews um, by men. Uh, Jack Stanton's recent review where he invoked... Uh, David Foster Wallace's speech about the fish Mm. and the older fish saying to the younger fish, how's the water today, boys? And one of the younger fish looks at the other fish after a while and says, what the hell is water? And I think, although I've got my issues with with Wallace, um, in, in gesturing to that quote, Jack really got to the heart of this book. This is a book about somebody who doesn't know what the water is and is forced to undergo this experience of understanding how profoundly wet he is. Absolutely. I, I, that's just beautifully put. And again, I think we can both agree that the David Foster Wallace co- quote there was peculiarly apt for a number of reasons because he himself, while reflecting upon the water, was himself very, very wet with it in terms of his own questionable gender relations um, and other such things. Thank you, um, Serge, for coming in today. Um, This is an extraordinary book. It's one that I don't think um, is going to um, fade anytime soon. I think we're just going to hear more and more about it. Uh, If you haven't already gotten your hands on The Fortress, please definitely do, Serge. Thank you so much for coming in today. It is an absolute pleasure. Thank you. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Um, that laughter you're hearing in the background oh, is, is the wonderful <laughs> Sophie Black, um, who, with whom I have been discussing such issues as Donald Glover and This Is America. 
Um, and also definitely seeing that Laura Jean Girls on TV video clip. Um, yeah, the film clip is back and I could talk about that for a good half an hour with absolutely. you, but that's not why I'm here. <laughs> it, it absolutely is not <laughs> why you're here. Um, but look, why you're here is, is something that I, it's one of those I can't believe it hasn't been done before type of things because you know what? It takes time and it takes money and it takes support to write books, whether they be works of poetry or short stories or novels or amazing long-form non-fiction. And the Wheeler Centre has suddenly gone, you know what? We're going to do something about that. And furthermore, we're going to try and bring in voices that we don't often hear and we badly need to hear uh, in Australian literature and we're going to be just making sure that happens. Talk to me about the next chapter, Sophie Black. Well, this is something uh, that we have been thinking about for quite a while. So the Wheeler Centre has been going for eight years now uh, and our kind of our remit was to make it easier and better for someone in Melbourne to be interested in books, writing and ideas and to be able to access that and in all sorts of different ways. So we've been going for eight years and we support writers in a number of different ways, but we wanted to think of a way that we could do it in an even more concrete way, do it in a national context, so go beyond Melbourne and Victoria and do it in a national context uh, and do it in a really concrete way based on our observations and, and based on our conversations with people over a very long time now about just how hard it is to be a writer in this country. Uh, it's hard to be a successful writer, let alone uh, break into the publishing industry. So uh, I think the average income of a writer in this country is something around $15,000. I so, think that's generous, actually. And that's probably generous. So, And that's, in air quotes, a successful writer. So... Trying to make a living from this craft is incredibly hard. Uh, the the commercial crunch gets uh, harder and harder each year. Uh, even the most well-meaning publishers who want to take risks on new writers uh, are finding that increasingly hard to do. So we wanted to start a scheme that made real and lasting change that was an intervention that meant we could nurture a new generation of Australian writers. Uh, so the way that we are doing that for starters is by picking 10 writers a year. So we're, we're asking people to enter the next chapter. And of the people that enter, we will select 10 writers a year. We will give each of them $15,000 we will match them with a mentor uh, and they will work with that mentor over a year to, to craft and hone their work and more importantly, to take risks on their work as well. So that is sort of the first stage of this process, but we want it to be a truly three-dimensional scheme. So the first intention is to slow the process down uh, and to give writers the, the time and the space to take risks on work. So that is the intention for the first year for those 10 writers. Now, not only will they be working on their writing or a specific piece of work, they'll also be supported to sort of navigate the publishing industry, to think about what that means, to think about what it means to carve out a career long term, to get beyond that first exciting book on the shelf 
and think of the second and the third book and really think about their career in, in, a, in a very long-term way. Often um, a, a new first-time published author will get really, really excited about getting that book on the shelf and getting their name on the spine. Um, but because of the commercial crunch with, with publishers these days, there's sometimes there's a marketing plan before the... Th- the f- sort of first draft has been completed. There's a headshot and a bio and, and you're on the Christmas list before you're really happy with that work. And you're nodding emph- emphatically. Okay. You, can, you can read that on the page Absolutely. with some authors. It's one of the... Look, when I was reading uh, about this, um, this particular kind of grant series, in fact, I was teaching classes about how to write grants and I grabbed it for two reasons. Firstly, because... It's an incredibly well-described grant and you've tried to make it, make it accessible in terms of actually how you've framed it so people can understand how to actually apply. Mm. And in fact, they can be nominated by someone else. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But but this element of it mattered so much to me because I think, you know, especially in a, a smaller market like Australia, one of the main kind of, you know, falling off points is exactly what you've described you, you've got a really great start with a book and then the structure falls apart and you can see that they've, you know, had to rush to finish it because they've got to meet deadlines or they don't have the support to do it. So they don't really have time to sit with what could be a truly amazing book and you can see where it could have gone in those initial chapters um, and then see where they need to work. And, and you know the reasons for that. And a lot of them are exactly as you're saying, they're financial reasons or they're other pressures or the pressures of... of of commercial publishing generally. But I do want to talk about some of the other elements of this because you very particularly positioned this as something that is um, being made available for writers who we don't often see in the publishing world. And that includes, you know, people who are maybe people of colour or um, people who have disabilities or other kind of um, mitigating factors like that in their lives, people who've arrived as asylum seekers. It's one of the few grants that I've seen out there that says you can be an Australian resident, but you don't have to be a permanent resident or a citizen and openly states you're after asylum seekers. But there is a question I have to ask because this is also merit-based. Mm-hmm. So you are looking for people who, you know, can write and who are really producing a solid work. Mentorship is not training people how to actually write. It's actually developing their craft. It sort of feels like there should be a stage before for some people, particularly those who've come from, uh, you know, language other than English backgrounds or who've arrived as asylum seekers whose stories are crucial. You know, do you feel as though that's something, a water that you might wade into later or something that you hope to link up to even for, you know, round two of these sort of submissions? We've we've really grappled with this because I, I think one of the great benefits of this scheme is that we are devoting time and resources to reaching out to people who wouldn't otherwise put their hand up for this. We've learnt a lot along the way. We've talked to a whole heap of different writers' centres, community centres, um, all sorts of uh, different organisations about how best to encourage people to apply. Uh, and 
we can't make any assumptions. So you mentioned the nomination process. That was one of the first things we sort of decided to implement after talking to quite a few people because I think there's assumption. Then there's an assumption that if somebody's a good writer, that means they're good at putting a grant application together as well. It's just filling out a form. How hard can it be? Um, you know, but we were told very, very quickly, very early on that that is absolutely not the case for all sorts of reasons. Uh, and in some cases... People could be an incredibly shit-hot writer with a 10,000-word manuscript in their bottom drawer, but they are reluctant to put their hand up. They're reluctant to talk themselves up. They're reluctant to put themselves forward. So that's why we have uh, a two-pronged approach. You can apply yourself personally or you can have somebody nominate you and in turn hopefully encourage you and assist you with your application as well. We've also tried to make the application process as simple as possible uh, because often these things are stacked or weighted towards people who are good at writing grants and applications. So we've tried to make it as simple as possible and strip back as many requirements as we can. But above and beyond that, we're also emphasising that we're here to assist. We're here to help. You can. There's a phone number that you can call. Uh, we're trying to make sure that we um, are mindful of all the potential barriers that could be in place for people when it comes to applying to for this kind of thing. There's even quite an adorable video of you and a colleague, Jantia. <laughs> adorable I is just, one word for it. <laughs> I thought it was, uh, it, it really actually warmed my heart because there you are kind of, you know, trying to explain all of the elements of this yeah. so that if people kind of, you know, didn't, you know, and, and when I say wade through, um, wading through this kind of material uh, is actually not hard because you use plain English, direct language, trying to make it really accessible. But having that video there as well was really nice because, you know, it's people trying to tell you some stuff and quite often, you know, uh, funding applications might offer these training sessions, but you've got to be able to come there at a particular time and the information, you know, isn't freely available in, in the way that this has been, you know, made to be. So Absolutely. There's, I think if, if you haven't come up through a writing course or you're not a member of a writer's centre or you, and you have no connection with the literary world as such, in air quotes, it's really hard to know where to start. But beyond getting people to apply, there's also uh, the fact that that year-long mentorship that I referenced will be tailored to each participant. So depending on those 10 different people and their 10 different sets of circumstances, we will tailor that mentorship to uh, the towards their circumstances and the needs of the work. The work might have progressed to a point where they're ready for an editor for a, a full year, uh, which is priceless when it's taken out of that publishing context and it doesn't have that really rapid-fire deadline. But it might mean you need... a more all you know more like the the literary equivalent of a personal trainer who's yelling at you to get out of bed maybe mm. they're not yelling you at you they're whispering in your ear encouragingly but not in a creepy way <laughs> uh, but it depends on it depends on what the needs are so we we want to be really mindful of that and that's when it's going to come down to haggling over around the judging committee around what we mean by potential mm. and what we think is worth uh, taking a risk on in a way that a publisher might might not ordinarily be able to do. Once that year is up, the aim, uh, the aim is to have um, a certain number of works ready to take to publishers. So we would then effectively add a, act as a broker and we would help uh, th- those participants 
uh, negotiate with publishers, give them advice around who we think the best person is for them to go with and it's not necessarily the highest bidder uh, according to their needs and according to the needs of their work. And then above and beyond that, we will then work with publishers to help incentivise um, publishing this work. So if they have really good ideas about how they'd get that work into the hands of new readers, we will then help them find help those publishers financially to realise that that plan. So mm-hmm. that's where that three dimensional aspect comes in, and that's where publishers are getting really excited about this scheme. If you've just joined us, uh, you're listening to Backstory on Three Triple R, talking to the wonderful Sophie Black, uh, who is the head of publications at the Wheeler Centre, about this amazing initiative, the next chapter. Sophie, we don't have a lot of time left, so I really do want to talk about who can apply for this because, you know, it is quite open uh, in terms of, you know, who actually can apply, mm. I mean, in terms of the criteria. But who are you hoping will apply for this? Who is the the target for this particular set of, you know, of grants? Well, we... Everyone is free to apply. You need to be 18 years or, or over, but other than that, it's 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 a very open process. But we have been um, we have emphasised the fact that we are seeking uh, a diverse set of writers with a diverse set of stories. So that can mean that that's that interpretation of diversity is is a very broad one. Uh, it can mean people um, from regional and remote areas. Uh, it can mean gender diverse, uh, it can mean uh, people from soci- different socioeconomic backgrounds, uh, First Nations backgrounds. Um, we, we are looking to make sure that we ensure that those 10 people reflect the diversity of the Australian experience. Mm. And I also kind of thought along the lines of, you know, with this emphasis on, you know, maybe lack of access to publishing, it can also mean works that wouldn't get published otherwise. So I was thinking, you know, even if you've got sort of obscure or experimental works, could this be maybe something for people in that category as well? Absolutely. We uh, basically in terms of... what kind of work is eligible. Uh, We are accepting fiction, non-fiction works, poetry, graphic novels. Really the only thing that we are not um, accepting is uh, screenwriting, so Mm. screenplays uh, and that sort of thing. Um, We're looking to create works in a book form, so that's that's the aim of this. Um, but we're abs- absolutely open to seeking experimental work, and so we've we've tried to make those parameters very broad as well. And just quickly, I did notice there was sort of a word count list. I think of something like ten thousand words mm. of a particular, you know, or a certain number of pages. Do you expect uh, a you know, a vast kind of body to have already been completed in this work? Is that the expectation? We, we, the, so the word count or the requirement varies based on the genre of the work that you're submitting. If, if it is, say, fiction or non-fiction um, prose, it's 10,000 words, um, but it varies for something like poetry or a, a graphic novel. Um, we want the vast majority, of, well, 75% of that work to reflect the work that the participant wants to work on across the year. So we need to get a, a really good idea of the nature of the work, the merit of the work and, and what they will want to be focusing on for the year ahead. 
Sophie, I could talk to you about this for another <laughs> hour at least. There's so much in this. I am so, so thrilled that this exists, that you've done it. Um, it's, and I even focus on negatives with this in any way, <clears throat> seems extremely churlish because this has been something that the writing industry has desperately needed for a very long time. I'm hoping that we're going to find uh, an incredible group of people coming out through it, especially people from diverse backgrounds. Um, our industry cannot get enough of them. Thank you so much for coming and discussing it with Thank me. Thank you for having me, Mel. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.